Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I want to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership Podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Cliff Duvinois, and today we are joined by the superintendent of Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. His name would be Scott Tucker. Scott, how are you? Doing great, Cliff. Thanks for having me today. No problem. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up. Sure. Uh, I actually grew up in the Denver, Colorado suburbs of Aurora, Colorado, where I fell in love with national parks by family vacations. Made my way to the University of Northern Colorado, where I studied uh, history and archaeology, intending to be a high school social studies teacher. And a uh, chance encounter with a park ranger on spring break, my uh, senior year in college at Mesa Verde National Park, led me to uh, a different career choice, and that was educating through national parks rather than in the classroom. What do you think it was that drew you to work with national parks in the first place? You know, uh, growing up in Denver, that was my family vacation. So our family vacation was arches and canyonlands in Utah. It was Grand Tetons in Yellowstone, Glacier in Montana, the Grand Canyon, the parks in the Southwest. And so that's all I sort of ever knew. It was our, my family in the, in the Ford Bronco, and we were uh, camping throughout the West. And seeing from a professional eye when I was getting ready to graduate college, seeing the connection that that one park ranger made for me, made me sort of have that aha moment. And so my first park service career was less than a year after that moment where I moved to Alaska and was a interpretive education park ranger at Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park in Skagway, Alaska. And that was 20, 23 years ago. So what brought you to Michigan? Uh, a long trip around, went from Alaska to Washington, DC, where I met my wife who was a Michigan, um, was born and raised in Michigan in Lansing. We left DC to the West Coast to uh, Lewis and Clark National Historical Park where I was the superintendent for several years. And then we made our way back to Michigan four and a half years ago, actually on uh, Facebook today popped up. We were hopping on a plane five years ago in Portland, Oregon to come visit grandpa in Lansing and Flint for the Christmas holiday, not knowing that six months later we would be moving the family here. <laughs> Man, I love it when, when those big changes in life happen like that. Definitely. Yeah, it was it was sort of a prime moment. You know, national parks are coveted jobs and we all fight when a job opens. We all we all fight for it, which means whoever gets that job, their previous job in a pretty amazing place opens up as well. And so I believe it was about a week after we returned from a great Christmas holiday in Flint that the job here at Sleeping Bear opened up. And so my wife and I and our kids uh, made the decision to put my hat in for it and see if we can get our, our kids, which we have two of, a little bit close to one of our grandparents as they're growing up. Nice. Now, for your decision to go into uh, park service, and especially with you know focusing on educating the general public, what was, what was some of the advanced schooling uh, that you took? Like, like, where did you go to college? And what did you study? And was there, you know, perhaps maybe some like business degree or a business focus on parks? 
Yeah, you know, good question. So, you know, parks, really, there's a job for almost any discipline. I personally have a degree in social science with a minor in history and a minor in archaeology. And that's was my drive to teach high school social studies and history. And out of, you know, the 420 plus national park sites, there are historical sites or natural resource sites. There are geologic sites. And so my background fit in perfectly with uh, Klondike Gold Rush for my first job working in telling the story of the Klondike Gold Rush of 1898. Nice. I found myself nice. in Washington, D.C. at the National Mall and working all the monuments and monuments and memorials. So in my early 20s, what better job than standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial uh, talking about the American Civil War or the top of the Washington Monument or Jefferson Memorial talking about the American Revolution. Uh, so depending on the job depends on sort of the background. And so my uh, education at University of Northern Colorado really set the foundation for being a uh, history teacher in the field for the early parts of my career. Nice, nice. So with regards to the the, the opportunity that presented itself to work at the, the Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore, how did that come about? Oh, Dusty Schultz, who was my predecessor, was here for over 15 years, and she retired in the fall. And like many federal jobs, it opens up to any any citizen can apply. And so it's a normal federal application and questionnaire that luckily my, my background of both management of national park sites, as well as education, cultural resources, lined up with what my boss at the time, um, the regional director of the National Park Service, was looking for for the next leader here at Sleeping Bear Dunes. Nice. And why don't you talk to us a little bit about the the history of Sleeping Bear Dunes? You know, how maybe even I, I would always like to know this because I've always called it Sleeping Bear Dunes, but I, how did it even get its name in the first place? You know, Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore actually celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2020. Nice. It was created in October 1970. After uh, over 10 years of debate and excitement and frustration, if you look uh, back to 2016, you may remember the big Find Your Park campaign of the National Park Service celebrating the the 100th anniversary of the National Park System in 2016. Well, in 1956, the National Park Service was celebrating its 50th anniversary. And part of that National Park Service 50th anniversary they dispatched teams across the country to identify areas of national splendor, historical significance, areas that were not yet, um, stories were not yet told in the National Park Service or protected by the National Park Service. And that team made their way to the Great Lakes where they visited areas like the Apostle Islands up on on Lake Superior, Wisconsin. Pictured Rocks, Sleeping Bear Dunes and Indiana Dunes were all parks that were identified, park areas that were identified in that late 50s exploration. And so Apostle Islands, Pictured Rocks, Sleeping Bear Dunes, and Indiana Dunes all became part of the National Park Service between the late 60s and 1970, with Sleeping Bear Dunes being the last of those of that grouping to be added to the protection of the National Park Service. The, the name Sleeping Bear Dunes predates the lakeshore, and it comes, it's, it comes from an Anishinaabek story of Mother Bear and her two cubs who were in Wisconsin long ago. And there was a great famine in Wisconsin. And Mother Bear asked her cubs to follow her as she swam the 50 plus miles across Lake Michigan 
to today's Michigan and the area known as Sleeping Bear Dunes. That that exhausting journey for Mama Bear and her two cubs tragically ended as Mother Bear climbed upon the shore of the Dune Plateau and saw her two cubs disappear below the water out of exhaustion. As she laid on the shore waiting for her cubs to join her, her cubs uh, by, were transformed into the North and South Manitou Islands in rows out of Lake Michigan oh, off the coast oh. at the shoreline here. And Mother Bear still sits today as a formation upon the Dune Plateau overlooking the North and South Manitou Islands. So that Anishinaabek story predates the lakeshore. And that is the story of how the, how the islands and the Dune Plateau with Mother Bear was created. Nice. Love it. Thank you for sharing that. What I would like to do is, this is probably what Sleeping Bear Dunes is, is commonly known for. What I would like to do is just take take some time and in the summer when the weather's nice, what are a lot of the, the activities that are going on? Because I remember going there as a kid and it seemed like I think my, you know, my parents and, and friends and whatnot took me to Sleeping Bear Dunes so I could run up the hill and wear myself out so I would actually like sleep that night. So what what are you know what are some of the really great activities that there are to do at the park? Yeah, you you just hit on it, you know. My first visit to the lakeshore was uh, probably 10 12 years ago and and that visit we did the things that my wife did when she was a kid going to summer camp up here. We climbed the dune climb. We dipped our toes in Lake Michigan. We joked that my wife was part of the Sandpiper Club that when she was 15, 16, ran up and down the dune face 20 times. I'm sure that was the campers, camp counselor's way of getting kids to go to sleep at night. Yes. So you have those you have those iconic things to do when you come here, which is sort of the first time. It's climb the dune climb, that, that bluff that could end with a mile and a half hike to Lake Michigan. It is the, the scenic overlook of the number nine on the Pierce Stocking Drive that puts you into a different world of the dune plateau 450 feet above Lake Michigan on a spectacular day looking out over almost Caribbean green waters. But if you come back for that second visit, we have over a dozen hiking trails adding up to over 100 miles of hiking trail. And those hiking trails can be used all year long. In the winter, they become snowshoe and cross-country ski trails. In the summer, hiking, uh, trail running, jogging. There are camping. We have two great campsites, and so families can disappear into northern Michigan and and hear the hear the waves crashing from their tents at the DH Day Campground. We have the amazing Sleeping Bear Heritage Trail, which is a multi-use paved trail, almost all paved, running over almost 20 miles in the lakeshore, which gives you access uh, to parking your car and going for an adventure and seeing areas of the park. We have the Port Oneida Historic District, which is the largest rural agricultural protected district in the United States government. Over 5,000 acres of the Port Oneida Rural Agricultural District are protected and preserved in a 1900 era farming community that was up here in northern Michigan over 120 years ago. There are, there's a a concession ferry that will take you to the North and South Manitou Islands where you can enjoy camping and wilderness. You can visit the South Manitou Lighthouse Complex and learn about maritime history. As a history geek myself, coming to Sleeping Bear, I, you know, I was pleasantly surprised at the breadth of cultural and uh, cultural stories that this park preserves and tells, whether it is of the United States Life Saving Service, the precursor to uh, 
to the Coast Guard on the Great Lakes. Uh, if it, was, it could be agricultural and farming. It can be timber or ghost towns within the lakeshore. And then there's the water access. There is Lake Michigan. There's the Platte River where you can tube and kayak and take a lazy float. There's a little bit of everything for everyone year-round, in a sense. Summer is just one piece of the great puzzle that we are. And that was something where, you know, in, in prepping for this uh, podcast interview today, very happy to see that you know the sleeping bear dunes especially with the snowshoeing uh happens happens in the winter time now is that something that's always been a part of sleeping bear dunes is that something that, that has more, been more recently added uh people have been recreating year-round in the lakeshore for for years and years access to equipment has become more readily available in recent times so it's easier to get a pair of snowshoes whether you rent them or buy them it's easier to get cross-country ski gear. And some of my my family's best memories are snowshoeing in the lakeshore because you can go cross-country nice. off-trail into areas that there is nothing but maybe a rabbit track in. On a normal year, four to 5,000 elementary school children go on snowshoe ranger programs as field trips. That's the one piece that we're missing this winter. I know my rangers would rather be in the snow with students rather than over uh, technology doing distance learning field trips. And so hopefully we'll get back to a little normalcy in 21, 22 and return. But even the Sleeping Bear Heritage Trail, our great partner group, Friends of Sleeping Bear, they groom a good portion of that heritage trail for a cross-country skiing throughout the winter as well. Nice. And I know we, we talked a little bit and I, I do want to dive into that shortly talked a little bit about the impact that COVID is having on the park but before they hit the record button on the interview you were telling me that this last year was a record-breaking year for the number of people visiting I, I i did say that so yeah one of the interesting things so you look at what happened you know around the united states over the summer and it happened here in sleeping bear as well we closed down our vault toilets in our trailheads in early spring, April, and into May as we are trying to get a grasp, just like many others, of how to respond to uh, COVID and protect not only our staff, but the visiting public. We reopened those areas at our campgrounds in June. We had the busiest July ever. We had the busiest August ever. We just had the busiest November ever. And in the end, we have already set uh, our record visitation for the National Lakeshore in the last 50 years with over 1.7 million visits in the year 2020. And we still have two more weeks. And right now we have six inches of snow and blue skies. So if, if 2020 brought us anything, it proved that the idea 50 years ago to create Sleeping Bear as a recreational outlet for the American people rang true. As movie theaters were closed, as access to gathering points were closed, public lands were open and Sleeping Bear greeted thousands of visitors this summer. Our only, our, one of our only regrets is we had new visitors that have never set foot here before and we limited and we cut back on our public contact as a precaution for our staff and for the public. And so we didn't have as many contacts with visitors coming here to encourage them to recreate responsibly, to take their trash with them to leave everything in place from a Petoskey stone to uh, trees. And so a challenge was not having as many staff in the field this summer to interact with those 1.7 million visitors. 
And as a kid who fell in love with parks, like I did even at Mesa Verde in high school, in college, we had to cancel our campground programs this summer. And so that's a, a key piece of interacting and creating, you know, the next junior ranger and the next generation of rangers. So we have great opportunities as we come in the next couple of years. Excellent. And I know you said before this was, and the number in itself, 1.7 million people. That's a staggering amount. What would you, what would you, how would you compare that number to like, let's say 2019 or 2018? What was, what's your, what's your average number of people coming in? Our busiest year up until 2020 was 2016 with 1.6 million visitors. Hmm. The last four years have hit around between one point, right around 1.6. So this year we are about 20, right now we're about 20,000 visitors above our all-time record of 2016. Hmm. So by being closed for a few months and limited access, pretty excited that that many people found us and were able to do it safely. Nice. And for, you know, somebody who, you know, is listening to this podcast, maybe they've never even been to Sleeping Bear Dunes. And if they were to ask you and say, you know, hey, Scott, we're going to come up to Sleeping Bear Dunes. We've got a couple hours we'd like to do. What would you tell them would be some of the, some of the highlights that they should hit? Oh, if they told me they had two hours, I would tell them just to find a beach and enjoy a few seconds of splendor, but and then cry, and hopefully they can come back for a longer visit. <laughs> another day. You know, that first-time visitor, I think they need to have that epic experience of the number nine overlook off the Pure Stocking Drive, just to see the grandeur of these coastal dunes, which are the highest coastal dunes in the world at over 450 feet, standing up above Lake Michigan. Another stop is uh, the dune climb, where they can run up and down to their heart's content over these glacially carved features that are our namesake. If they're history geeks like me, I would send them to Glen, Glen Haven, which is a historic village of the recreation and logging and shipping days, and engulf themselves in our maritime museum and our in our museums that tell the story of the U.S. Lifesaving Service. Those are just three things, and that'll probably take you half a day. Catch lunch in one of our local communities and get back to your hotel and plan your next visit. Nice. And I know with with COVID right now, and I, and I know you had, you know, this year has been a record-setting uh, year for you. What are some of the measures that, that you and your staff have put into place to, to help keep people safe? Good question. You know, we did a lot of back and forth following CDC guidance in the, in the spring. And things have morphed, of course, as the year, as we've learned more and gotten better, uh, better information. One of the things back in 1916, when the National Park Service was created, the director of the Parks, then Park Service then asked the United States Public Health Service to partner with the National Park Service. And so we actually have United States Public Health Service officers embedded in the National Park Service nationwide. And we actually have United States Public Health Service officers assigned specifically to Sleeping Bear Dunes. And so we have a direct line to consistent and accurate information. And so we, you know, we did what many businesses did. We put up sneeze guards in our campgrounds and at our visitor center. We put up signs limiting the number of people to come into our museums. We uh, trained our staff in proper use of PPE and empowered them to walk away from visitors that were not abiding by social distancing. 
We focused on the social media campaign of recreating responsibly. Early in the pandemic, we closed trailheads and restrooms because the restroom cleaning protocols were not evident and we wanted to protect our staff our staff that clean those restrooms on a daily basis, first and foremost. We unfortunately, we altered some of our public scheduling. We limited our campground programs, like I mentioned before, rather than that formal historic go for a hike with a ranger, our rangers did more pop-up programs where they would just show up somewhere in the park and interact with small groups rather than advertising an hour long hike with a ranger. So we, we adjusted and followed the CDC every step of the way on the guidance for both our in-person as well as our, our staff working behind the scenes. Nice. Absolutely love it. And you kind of hit on this before, and I do want to spend some time talking about it, is you were talking about how your, your rangers are now doing virtual education versus, you know, the, taking the kids out for a hike in the area. Talk to us a little bit about about that. What was that like getting that up and running? Well, we're pretty lucky that we have an amazing education staff here at the Lakeshore that have uh, been doing some distance learning uh, in the winter, specifically over the last few years. So we were lucky that we had the equipment in-house and ready to go. What we didn't have was full programming. If you asked me this question a year ago, I probably would have told you we have three or four distance learning field trips. Today, we have over 15 of them that our ranger staff spent the early uh, fall and late summer mastering some distance learning programs so that they could reach out into classrooms and tell the story of the National Park Service and Sleeping Bear Dunes. Where a normal year, we might have had five to 10 distance learning field trips. Right now, we're doing five to 10 a week. I believe we had two of them today. And so that brings the breadth, the reach of Sleeping Bear far beyond the local community, and they're doing programs with students across the country and uh, sharing with them why this place is so great. And, you know, one of the goals of that is to create a future park lover that will fight for national parks for the rest of their life. Nice. And I'm, I'm very happy to to hear you say that, and especially taking advantage of the technology and being able to interact with students literally across the country. And that has been a recurring theme uh, that I've had with other guests on the show. So, you know, being able to take the, you know, the disadvantage of uh, COVID-19 and actually turn it into advantage and get national exposure, because you never know who of these kids are going to wind up coming one day to exactly. you know, Sleeping Bear so our, yeah, Yeah, our challenge is going to be next year, if knock on wood, everything returns to some normalcy. We're going to have teachers, local teachers, calling the first day field trip reservations are open. And so we're going to have uh, to manage the expectations of now a national audience looking for these spectacular distance learning programs when those same rangers are the ones doing snowshoe tours for the local elementary school kids. Right. Awesome. I can think of worse challenges, though. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you there. So, you know, in a world uh, that, you know, we come back to some level of nor- level of normalcy, do you see yourself continuing doing the, the virtual education or, you know, how do you see that working out? Well, I, I'll tell you, I'll speak for my education rangers. They'll tell you nothing is better than place-based education where you can interact and connect with a student in the park and talk and, and interact and talk about and teach on a specific thing they can reach out, touch, feel, smell. And so that will probably be our priority. 
and then we will then backstep into additional distance learning programming as we can accommodate it with our staffing with the staffing we have nice excellent Scott, for our audience, if they're interested in, in connecting with you, following what you're doing online, what would be the best way for them to connect with you? We have a great platform on social media. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter. We have an Instagram. All of those things I can uh, share with you that they can launch with this podcast if I haven't done so already. So we have a great social media um presence as well as the good old-fashioned www.nps.gov slash slbe for our website nice and for our audience we will have all those links in the show notes down below scott thank you so much for being on the podcast today really do appreciate it happy to be here thanks for thanks for the conversation cliff hey everyone if you enjoyed this episode then subscribe to our email newsletter when you subscribe you'll get new episode announcements You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callofleadership.com slash email, type in your email address and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com slash email. I'll catch you in the next episode.